Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Good morning again. My name is Patrick. I am one of the ministers here. When early on in uh, our marriage, Karine and I, my wife, uh, one of the singers on stage, were, uh, we bought a house. And uh, it, was, it wasn't the first one we bought, but it was like real early. And so I don't know if you remember being in that situation where you basically have no money. Uh, you've been renting and you don't want to continue to rent, but you're trying to figure this out. And so you don't know a lot. And so we lived in this small town. It was uh, small town Iowa. The whole, whole town had about 4,500 4, people in it. And we'd been renting, and our rent, get this, our rent was 300 bucks a month. And we were like, oof, it's a little steep. <laughs> it's a little much. And so we went looking for a house, and we found a place. Found a place that was in our budget. Uh, the, the, the resale, or the, the value of the house, or the, not the value, uh, but the actual cost of the house was $33,000. $33,000. Now, again, that was, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, and it's, it's small town Iowa, um, but there was a reason it was that cheap that I didn't know at the time. It was old house, rock and mortar basement, not even cinder block, super old, and we didn't go in the basement. If you picture a horror movie basement, that's exactly the basement. Uh, I discovered that's where the furnace was, that's where the water heater was, and I discovered there were also lots of bats in the basement, and so occasionally I would have to go down there for something, you know, something wasn't working, change out a filter on the furnace, something like that, and literally it was like creaky stairs, door would creak open and you would look down there and you'd like, okay, I brought a tennis racket for the bats and you would just like slowly make your way down there, kind of like looking for bats and I would, you know go down there. Did you ever go in the basement once? You did. Oh, a tornado. Yeah, that would, it wouldn't have saved us in a tornado. Uh, <laughs> we would have been dead. But I was down there one time, and uh, I saw sunlight coming through a corner of the basement wall. And I don't think that's supposed to be the case. So it was a far corner of the basement, apart, literally, I had never gone like 10 feet into this basement other than where, you know, the furnace and the hot water heater. So I ventured over to this corner slowly, because again, bats, and made my way over there, saw this place where the sunlight was coming through and like touched the wall and the wall just crumbled. And what I discovered, I wasn't a very experienced homeowner, but what I had discovered is there was a hole the size of, I don't know, we're in Iowa, so a hole the size of a pig that you could have just walked through, crawled through, and the previous owner or a previous owner had taken insulation, stuffed it in there, and then put sheetrock mud over it, and then did a little bit of work on the outside to make it look like everything was cool. And I was thinking, how in the world did this house pass inspection so we could borrow the $33,000? And I know exactly how it happened. The inspector came to the house, opened the basement door, took a look down there and said, I'm sure it's fine. It's good. It's no problem at all. And we literally had no recourse because we had signed off on it. So this house, we had paid $33,000 for when it was time for us to move. The, the, we, and we actually had it on the market for quite a while. We ended up selling the house for $18,000. 
That's how good I am at money. I'm just really good at picking the right things. Because this foundation was completely crumbling. Now, obviously, you foundations, we read that verse, you kind of know where this is going. But I've been preaching at Woodbury for over 16 years, 16 years, which feels like a while. Um, I, I try not to be too predictable, but I'm going to venture a guess. I don't want to see a show of hands, but I'm going to venture a guess that some of you have heard like a story once or twice that I've told. You're like, oh, I've heard this one before. And sometimes what happens is, is you, you elbow your husband or wife and you're like, I know where this is going. I know what he's going to say. I know exactly what's coming here. I, I try not to do that very often, but I know what happens. I've tread the same ground occasionally before. Um, and so maybe if you've heard me preach here for a while, you've heard me say something about, oh, yeah, 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 I know that this, this is going. I think that that same experience is what the apostles would have had when they heard Jesus teach. They were going from town to town, from hillside to hillside, from beach to beach, and he would gather a crowd and he would teach this crowd. And I think that they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard this one before. Oh, that's a great, knocks him dead every time when he talks about the speck in the plank, every single time. The love your enemies thing, boy, it gets silent. And they knew what was coming. They had heard Jesus teach. And I think he taught similar things in different settings because what he was teaching, he was trying to redefine what it meant to be a human in the world and what God was looking for for us to live in the world. So my theory is that Luke 6, 20, verse, through verse 49, was Jesus' go-to teaching. And that's what we've been exploring in this series. We called it Greatest Hits because it was Jesus' go-to. Every time he got a crowd, these are the things he tried to emphasize over and over again. And today, we have arrived at what would have been Jesus' standard closing. The part of the, the message, the part of the sermon where he wrapped it up, he landed the plane, and I'm sure the apostles sitting around, they were probably scanning the audience, and they're like, ah, oh, this is good, this is really good, I love it when he does this. And so you get to Luke chapter 6, verse 46, and this is the end of his teaching. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a building. That a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the rock without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. And that's the end of his sermon. Bam, right there. His destruction was complete. I mean, if you've ever listened to any of the great speeches in history, at least like Martin Luther King Jr., he ended his, his, his great speech with free at last. I mean, that was rousing. The crowd got into it. Or, or, or uh, maybe you've heard Churchill, if you think about his speech to the people during World War II, is actually to Parliament during World War II, and he was like, we will never surrender. We will fight on the beaches. We and people are, wow, they get into it. Or, or Frederick Douglass, I was reading a speech of his this week, and he ended his speech. Nobody expected him to talk about slavery, but he ended his speech with the doom of slavery is certain. I therefore leave off where I began with hope. And I can imagine the audience got goosebumps. But Jesus, he, all he says is it collapsed and his destruction was complete. And then the very next verse is he left. That was it. There was no like rousing. There was no come to me. There was no just as I am. There was no heartwarming story to get everybody teary-eyed and excited and want to follow him. It was just like, hey, if you don't listen to what I have to say, you're like a house that's going to fall apart. See ya. That's all he did. That was the end of the speech. But there's something huge in this closing statement. He says, this is how life works. 
And then he's just asking. I mean, it's implicit in the, in, in the, in the statement, what kind of life are you building? What kind of life are you going to build? Back to the beginning of the passage. I want you to just explore a concept with me that I think is, is pretty challenging. He asks the crowd this question, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now, with that word, we're jumping into the middle of an idea, the word Lord. It's not something that we have the same understanding of that they did. There's assumptions and beliefs built into the concept. When they call Jesus Lord, Lord, there's something that they're saying there. Jimmy Kimmel has a, uh, a segment on his late night program where he'll do a man on the street interview. You know what I'm talking about? It's like somebody's just walking down the street. They have no time to process. They've just got a microphone stuck in their face and they have to a- answer a question. And one that I saw recently that I thought was kind of funny is he, he would get this family and it would be a dad with their children and then they would ask the dad some pretty basic questions about the child. Like, for example, when is your child's birthday? Have you seen this one? And the blank faces on the dads, like, uh, uh, well, who's your child's best friend? No clue. One of them was like, what color are your child's eyes? Uh, you know, deer in the headlights. You know what I'm talking about? And I, I, I assume they cherry picked the worst of them. Uh, but I imagine that there, there are certain basic questions that if we asked you those questions, you would be a little caught off guard. You wouldn't be quite sure. Like, you know, but you don't know. And it was funny because then, of course, they really, they really turned the knife and they went to the moms. And the moms knew, like, you know, their childhood best friend, the name of their teacher in first grade. And the moms knew everything and the dads didn't know anything. And it goes, again, you know, cherry picking some of the stuff. But I thought, I thought it was kind of funny. But even basic questions sometimes catch us on our heels. Even basic questions about God and faith and Jesus catch us on our heels. I get calls and emails and have conversations, I think, with, with pretty, regular, pretty regular frequency where people will say something like, um, my agnostic friend asked me the other day how I could believe God is good with all the suffering in the world. And I, I didn't know how to answer. Or my Muslim friend said that, uh, that Jesus was a prophet, but he certainly wasn't the divine son of God. And, and I didn't know how to answer that or respond to that. Or, or maybe, maybe they say something like, I have a neighbor and they're just into healing and crystals. And, and, and they just said Jesus was just more in tune with the universe than the rest of us. And I didn't know how to react to that. It caught us off guard. We weren't expecting that conversation. And we know what we believe, but sometimes we don't know why we believe it. We don't know the substance and the underpinnings of, of those ideas. And, and it, I, I do this for a living, and it happens to me too. Earlier this week or earlier last week, I had somebody, we were talking about their kids' middle school soccer game, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, they asked me if all the stuff that's happening in Israel and Palestine has to do with biblical prophecy. And I was like, whoa, okay, hang on, left turn. I got I to gotta get my mind wrapped. I was just thinking about how your, your kid was playing soccer, and now, what, hang on. And it catches off, uh, us off guard. And I think we do operate out of unexamined belief all the time. So, so for example, what do we mean when we say Jesus is Lord? What is that claim? When we make that claim, if we do, what do we mean? And what did Jesus mean when he claimed it? And what did the apostles and the authors of the New Testament mean when they wrote it, that Jesus is Lord? I have absolutely no idea about British royalty. 
none of it makes any sense to me. I don't understand how as a person, a noble or a lord or a lady, and some of you are like, well, I'm an expert. I watched The Crown and Downton Abbey three times, so I know. <laughs> I don't get any of that. It doesn't make any sense. I was actually looking it up to see, well, what, is, what does it mean to be a lord or lady? And I found a website where you, as an American, can purchase the right to be a lord or a lady in England. Did you know this? You can do this. You, you have to be a landowner, and, and I thought that was interesting. So you have to be a landowner, but this website will allow you to purchase an 8 by 8 plot of land, and then with it, you get a certificate, and you can call yourself Lord whatever. Chatterley, is that one of them? I don't know. Lord, Lord something. Lord Downton Abbey, that's not one of them. I don't know. I don't know anything about this. I don't know how any of it works. Uh, by the way, it only is 995 pounds to do that, and I'm like, that sounds reasonable until I saw the conversion rate. It's a $1,200 for you to be a lord or lady. But the website I thought was really great. It said, it's an, an affordable way to enhance your social standing. And I thought, that's probably pretty good. Can you imagine just walking around in conversation like, uh, oh yeah, this is my friend Patrick. Actually, it's Lord Patrick. Um, <clears throat> it's official. I paid for it. I don't, I don't understand the idea, the, the whole idea behind lords and ladies and all that. But what does Jesus mean when he claims to be Lord? Nobody really debates that Jesus is, I mean, it's really beyond debate that he's the most important figure in history. There's really no deep argument about that. You couldn't really point to any one other person that had a, a greater impact. It's like an hourglass, and he's the narrow point in the hourglass, and everything in history funnels toward him, and everything past him funnels away from him. And he's like the most important person in history. The, the people who divided history used Jesus' birth to divide the before and the after. A while back, I was noticing, and, and I maybe don't read enough scholarly articles to notice this very often, but have you noticed that, that academic uh, language is moving away from A.D. and B.C.? Have you seen that? And it's going to, does anybody know what it is? It's going to, what's B.C. now? C.E., before Common Era, and then Common Era. And I think that's so funny because it, it's still the same exact dates. It's like in Harry Potter when they're like, the one who shall not be named. And you're like, well, uh, I think we all know who's being talked about here. So it doesn't even matter exactly if you're changing the language. It still is the dividing point in history. Even in people's attempts to avoid Jesus, they highlight who he is. They highlight his existence and his importance in the world. Now, we have a record of what people who knew him meant when they used the term Lord. And I think this is incredible. When you read about the people who walked with him and talked with him and, and, and interacted with him, what they meant when they used the term Lord. Peter said in Acts 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter was saying that this figure in history has the right and the ability to declare someone else morally clean. Imagine if I tried to do that walking down the street like your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. People would think I was nuts. But Peter said this individual, this figure could look at a person and say, I declare you clean. Your sins are forgiven. And in fact, there is no other name under heaven uh, by which we must be saved. That's incredible. That's what that term Lord means. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The claim is everyone at some point will recognize his lordship. That's the claim Paul's making there. That's unbelievable. Everybody. 
There is not a single human that has ever existed or ever will exist that at, won't, at some point won't recognize his lordship because it'll be so painfully and abundantly and obviously clear to the whole world that he is lord. And Paul's saying, you can get on board now, but at some point you will declare this truth. That's wild. Even the most ardent non-believer, your atheist uncle, at some point will say Jesus is lord and will bow his knee. That's unbelievable. John wrote in the book of Revelation, we read chapter 5 earlier, one of the best chapters in the whole Bible, but John wrote in chapter 19, he says that Jesus is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. The New Testament authors, the authors of the gospel say that he walked on water, he calmed storms, he healed people, he healed blindness, he raised the dead. They were claiming that the laws of nature, the very laws of nature, bent to his will. He is Lord. A resurrected Jesus met with uh, a skeptical apostle, Thomas. And Thomas, I don't know, he had happened to miss the first time Jesus showed up after his resurrection. He wasn't in the room. And so when all the apostles were going nuts saying, Thomas, I'm telling you, it was him. Thomas, in the back of his mind, was thinking, ah, it probably looked like him, but I mean, there's no way it could have been him. He died. There's no way, there's no way, there's no way. He was skeptical, and I totally get his skepticism. And then Jesus shows up, and he says, hey, Thomas, feel my wounds, feel my side. And what Thomas does is unbelievable. Thomas looks at this person, and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, hey, you saw and believed. Man, blessed are those people who don't see and still believe. And without exception, these followers of Jesus took this idea to imprisonment, and most of them took it to the grave, that Jesus is Lord. Whatever it meant, it was a big deal. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. There's no partial lordship. You can't pay $1,200 and get an eight-by-inch plot of land. This is the real deal, whatever it means. There's a missionary by the name of Hudson Taylor, and he spent 64 years working in China. And when most missionaries were just exporting Western culture, Hudson Taylor tried something different. And he tried to learn Chinese and, and, and uh, write in Chinese. And he, he dressed. He tried to adopt the customs of where he was. Uh, for, for 64 years, he did this. And he didn't just learn Mandarin, but he could read and write it along with several other dialects. And he would translate scripture into these other dialects. And Mandarin is hard. I know from experience, it's hard. He founded 125 schools. He created jobs for thousands of people. And the whole purpose was to bring Christ to Asia. And one autobiographer wrote, no person has done more to advance the name of Christ than Hudson Taylor since the time of Paul. I mean, this is the type of person he was. And what he wrote in one of his letters to somebody when he was trying to explain what drove him, he said this, either he is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And that's... that's a, Essentially, what we're asking ourselves here, do we believe that Jesus is Lord? That's the claim we have to wrestle with. Do we believe that? And we're like, well, Patrick, I'm at church on a Sunday morning. I woke up, put on my decent clothes, showed up. Of course, I believe that Jesus is Lord. Do you? Do you really? Do you really? Do, is, it a, is it a declaration or is it something that is so substantial to who you are and your identity? Now, I realize we may be wrestling with that question. Maybe you're like, I'm not sure, I'm on the fence, I'm checking things out. Totally fine. 
But I think the world has seen enough Christians who declare with their lips but don't believe with their hearts. There's enough of us. We, we don't need any more people like that. Either he is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Years ago, uh, my kids were barely past toddler age and we were able to start going to movies again. It's impossible to go to movies when they're really young because they don't get it. They're done in about 10 minutes and then you're like, man, I'm out 20 bucks. But when they were uh, a little bit older, we'd gone to some animated movie and we were exiting the movie theater. And this, this story is not a fun story. It still kind of haunts me. Uh, we were walking down the hallway, and uh, there was a dad and his daughter. I don't know if he had a wife or other family members yet, but he'd gotten angry about something, and he yelled at his daughter, and he said something about, no, we're going this way, we're going this way. She was walking the wrong way down the hallway. And uh, she didn't hear him. There's all kinds of noise, all kinds of stuff going on, and he reaches out and grabbed her hair and yanked her head back and pulled her down the hallway the other way. I didn't know how to react. I was so caught off guard. I was so uncertain. Did I just see this guy do that? That was so, like, I mean, so caveman, so Neanderthal. Like, what in the world? Did I just see that? And they were gone before I could, like, formulate a response. But something about that interaction certainly haunts me because I'm thinking, man, if he did that there in public, what in the world? What sort, of, what sort of terrible environment is this girl? And there have been other opportunities where I felt like I had seen someone with some power, with some, some uh, uh, status, mistreating somebody else, and it, it wells up this anger in me to do something, to say something. And if I, I don't know what I would do if I saw that particular interaction again, but it just made me so mad and so upset. Uh, and if you know, for me, I've had some pretty uncomfortable confrontations in public where I thought that was going on, and I'm not a confrontational guy. But that was so, it was so awful to witness that, and I felt so terrible for that young girl growing up in that environment. Like, what, what in the world must that life be like? Some of you are going to hear these words of Jesus in a domineering, authoritarian way. And it's really important we talk about this. Some of you are going to say, and so when you hear Jesus say, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? You hear that angry tone. You hear authoritarianism. You hear a domineering personality. There's a great story in Matthew chapter 12, that I think gives us a glimpse at the heart of Christ. And Jesus and his apostles were walking through a field, and the apostles were picking grain to eat. But it was the Sabbath. And they had really strict guidelines about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And it made the Pharisees so mad. They were like, how can you call yourself a rabbi and you're allowing your followers to pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath? There is no way a good rabbi would do that. They would know God told us not to work on the Sabbath and that is work. Therefore, you are not a good rabbi. And Jesus knew this was happening. The Pharisees used God to control, dominate, and abuse others. Jesus later shows up in a synagogue and he's talking and there's a guy in the synagogue who has some sort of problem with his hand. The scriptures say shriveled hand. 
and the Pharisees are over here. Jesus is over here. Battle lines are being drawn. The Pharisees know Jesus' reputation for healing people. And they're just looking at him saying, you better not heal that person on a Sabbath. You better not heal that man on a Sabbath. Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows exactly that they've tried to use scripture to control other people for their own purposes. And he looks right at them and he's like, you guys are such hypocrites. Your sheep will fall in a ditch on the Sabbath and you'll rescue it, but you don't want me to rescue this person, this person made in the image of God? And he looks at him, and I imagine he's looking right at the Pharisees when he commands this man's arm to be healed. And do you know what the lesson the Pharisees learned from that? They went homicidal. They said in the very next verse, they looked for a way to kill him. And Jesus quoted this scripture from Isaiah to reveal who he was and who is, where his heart is. And in Matthew chapter 12, and it's so beautiful, he says in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This is the heart of Jesus. Someone who's broken and hurt and struggling, Jesus has all the compassion in the world for. Someone who has been abused and marginalized and marginalized and mistreated, Jesus cares for. He will not break. He will not snuff out. Jesus is not that cold clinical doctor who's like setting the arm and sewing up the wound and just doesn't really care about the fear and the pain and the child that they're treating. That's not who Jesus is. He will not hurt hurting people, period. That is who the Lord of Lords is. That is who the King of Kings is. So hear Jesus' tone. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you're not going to do what I say? Why call me that? I'm not demanding you call me that. Why would you call me that if you're not going to live like I'm telling you to live for your own good, for your own betterment? Why would you do that? Let's get abstract for just a second. Because that's fun. It's funner than thinking about ourselves. Let's think about other people. If Christians really believed Jesus was Lord, they would fill in the blank. Now, some of you are probably, you immediately go to some political opinion or some social cultural issue, and maybe that's true. Or maybe some of you are like, oh, yeah, most of Christendom feels this way, but I'm on the outside. I have the right opinion, and if they were really right, they would think like I do. But if Christians... You don't have to answer out loud. Please don't answer out loud. If Christians really believe that Jesus is Lord, they would. Well, what is it for you? What would, they, what would Christendom do differently if they really believed? How would they behave differently? That's a good, it's a good question. Now let's get less abstract. If I really believed that Jesus was Lord... King of kings, Lord of lords, had power over the laws of nature, had power over the sin in my life. If I really believed that, I would. I would. What would I for, who would I forgive? What would I stop doing? What would I start doing? What would I avoid? What would I give up? What would I take on if I really, truly believed that? It's a hard question. Jesus isn't done yet. <laughs> Why call me Lord, Lord, if you're, if you're not going to do what I say? And then he says in Luke chapter 6, verse 47, I just want to lay it out and show you guys what this is really like. He says, as for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and what's, what's in the blank there? Believes my words? Uh, memorizes them? Takes really good notes on them? 
puts them into practice. This is going to sound a little crazy. Jesus is not looking for more belief from us. He's looking for more behavior from us. He's not simply looking for believers. He's looking for practitioners. You know, we, I've noticed this a lot. I mean, this has been true for a long time, but it just feels like it's more obvious in an era of, of social media. And I've been guilty of it too. But we give ourselves a lot of credit for believing the right things, right? And we'll signal that belief in a post on social media because we feel good. We tweet and support the correct cause, but not actually necessarily doing anything about that cause we're signaling support for. I think it's infinitely more valuable to have one person who takes concrete action than thousands of people who are just signaling that they believe the right things. And this is just in my experience, maybe this doesn't apply to you, but I have found as a general rule that people who are actually doing the good things don't have time to let everybody know that they have the right opinions about it. They just do it. That's just my opinion. That's, that's been my experience. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what a person who's like who actually does this stuff. Verse 48, verse 6, Luke 6. Chapter 6, they are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock, but when flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my word and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment that the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. The end. Uh, one year when we were down in Mexico on the trip that we go to, they were building uh, foundations for a new building that they were constructing. Now, when we go down there, they have us do menial tasks that we can't mess up too badly. We paint, we clean, we play with kids. And they're like, yeah, you can handle those things, but the real work will leave for the skilled laborers, and they hire people to come in. But we're there every day, and they've got these guys who are working on the, they're digging these footings for this building. And this is a story I've told before, so if you've heard it, congratulations, you've been here a long time. We... uh, we were working next to these guys all day, and one day, you know, we didn't necessarily speak enough Spanish to figure it all out, but we finally convinced them to let us have the pickaxe and try to dig a little bit of the trench that they were digging. Uh, and I thought, you know, I, I'm not like, you know, bodybuilder or anything like that, but I'm bigger than all these guys that were doing it. And I thought, I bet you in 20 minutes, I'm, I'm going to be so, it's going to be so impressive. You know, this is what I'm thinking. I'm going to hop down in that ditch. I got my axe and I'm going to be digging away. Now the footings on this island, it's a coral reef island. The footings are solid rock and you got to dig down about four feet. So I hopped down in there and uh, I took a big old swing with the, the pickaxe and nothing happened. <laughs> And I thought, uh-oh, and I'm really trying to prove, okay, like really, I, you know how your heart rate gets so high that you're like, oh, I might die. I probably should stop <laughs> doing what I'm doing right now. And I'm like, I, I worked for about 15 minutes and I did not do anything but create some dust. Nothing. It was so hard. It was so hard. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go over here and paint this wall. I think we'll leave this rest to you guys. I have never worked harder and accomplished less in my life. That's the, the, I still think about like, man, that was hard. These guys doing that every day, all day. Imagine you're a first century citizen. 
There's no backhoes. There's no trucks. There's no uh, heavy machinery. All you've got is, I don't know, I don't even know what they use, but you're trying to build your house and you're digging and it's hard and you're like, man, how deep does this really have to be? I mean, it's Friday, it's 4.45. Is, this is good enough, right? This is good enough. I know that's what I would be tempted to think if I was in that situation. I mean, nobody, there's no city codes. Nobody's coming to inspect anything. I mean, come on, I could just, this is fine. This is good enough. I'll be fine. It's hard to persevere when the payoff isn't in the present. It's so hard to keep going when you know it's down the road and in the future. But fast forward a few years, you're sitting on your first century couch, you're enjoying life, and all of a sudden you get the amber alert or the weather alert. I guess it's not an amber alert. The weather alert, and there's a storm, and there's a flood, and you're like, all right, kids, we got we to gotta hunker down. If you kept building those footings, you'd be so glad you did. And if you had given up a little early, and you're like, eh, I hope it holds, You'd be so upset that you, why didn't I just keep going? Why didn't I dig deeper? Why didn't I go do it the way I was supposed to do it? Now imagine, use your imagination for a second. Nearly everyone in the room has been through some tremendously difficult life event, something hard. Maybe it was a tough season of parenting. Maybe it was a a, a season of loneliness. Uh, Maybe it was grief and loss. Maybe it was forgiveness and reconciliation, but you've been through something hard. Everybody has, no matter your age. You've been through something difficult. Even the very nature of faith itself sometimes can be tremendously difficult and confusing. And that season was painful and you're confusing and you're like, ah, is it worth it? Do I keep going? Do I make this, do I make this happen? There may have been that moment where you thought, no, this is, it's not worth it. I'm, not, I'm done. I mean, how bad could it be if I just give up? Just what's the worst that can happen? Maybe my life will get better. I want to show you a picture, if you'd bring that up for me. This is uh, in 2018 after Hurricane uh, Michael. This is Mexico Beach, Panama, and uh, a uncle and a nephew built this house. And it was new construction. It had just been built 18 months or so before this hurricane came through. And I was reading an article about them, and they just, they, they did everything beyond code. And all the houses around them were built to code. And they said, <laughs> I mean, and, and people said, oh, we don't ever get the big one here. Uh, we don't ever, it's not that bad. That's more, that's more lower on the peninsula, but not up here in the panhandle where Mexico Beach is. And they're like, no, we're just going to go further than we need to go. And this is the picture. And I want you to notice something. This is so valuable. Parents. Uh, People who are caring for loved ones, look at the house behind that house. The people who determined that they were going to build and dig deep and build for the big one, not only protected themselves, but protected the house behind them. And, And there will be seasons of your life where that you are in the shadow of someone else who has dug deep and you will be grateful that they have. You'll be so glad that they spent the time they needed to spend to figure things out, and you will shelter in their shadow. But there are times where that's got to be you, for your family, for for your parents, for your loved ones, for your coworkers, for, for people you care about, maybe for people you don't know where your footings are deep and built well, and not only can you survive, but you can help somebody else survive. What hard obedience will your future self be grateful for? 
That hard thing that you're dealing with right now might be the process of digging a footing for your future or somebody else's future. And, and honestly, if we never step into difficult obedience, we're never going to grow deep roots. It's just never going to happen. I, I know I've been there. I've avoided the hard thing for years. And you just, as, as soon as the slightest gust of wind blows, your faith falls apart because you didn't build anything. You didn't build anything lasting. Anything other than living as Jesus has asked us to live. Who, he, Jesus' heart, he wants us. He wants good things for us. But anything other than building the way he's, he's asked us to live, I mean, all we're doing is we're stuffing a big hole in the foundation full of insulation and then covering it over sheetrock. It's not going to last. And you're going to lose a lot of money on your house. What kind of life are you building? That's, that's the question Jesus asks implicitly in this text. What kind of life are you building? What kind of life are you building? We're going to sing a song in closing. It's a song called Goodness of God. And it's a song that declares that God is good. But it, it begs the question as we sing that, whether or not we believe the first line of the song where we declare that he is Lord, whether or not we believe that, whether or not that's our life, whether or not we're putting the foundations deep for our own future, much less the people around us. And so I, I, and I don't know where everybody is. I don't know if they're exploring this. That's totally fine. Jesus does not snuff out the smoldering wick. He does not break the bruised reed. That's not what he's about. He's, he's about sheltering and encouraging and drawing us in. But whatever it is, I just pray that you can think about what kind of life that you're building, whether or not it's a life of, of obedience and, and, and dedication to God or whether or not it's your own thing, just your own way. And that's the question we have before us. Would you stand as we sing this song together?